I am delighted to be delivering the mini-series on international environmental law for the United Nations. I am Professor Edith Brown Weiss from Georgetown University in Washington, D.C. The first lecture is on international environmental law in context. Since the end of the Pleistocene geological epoch, about 11,500 to 12,000 years ago, we have been living in a geological epoch known as the Holocene. This has been a warm period between geological periods that are cool. We have now entered into the Anthropocene, in which we, our human activities, have a central role in shaping the planet. We will continue to have a central role for a very long time to come. We are a force of nature that is shaping the planet on a geological scale and at a far faster rate than traditional geological speeds. And there are many consequences from this that set an important context for international environmental law. For example, the sediment in river flows has been shrinking by at least 20% in the last few decades. Human activity has significantly affected over 90% of the world's fauna, flora, and ecosystems. The extinction rate of species is higher than at any other geological period. And importantly, the carbon and nitrogen cycles are accelerating by 150%. And there's also evidence that the hydrological cycle is speeding up. Thus, we are interrupting the natural processes of our planet refashioning them, and most importantly, accelerating them. And this raises critical issues about the resilience of our planet. It also means that the context for international environmental law is both today, but also inherently intergenerational. We are responsible for our common home, the Earth. There are four perspectives that are essential in my view, for understanding international environmental law. The first is what I term the environmental systems perspective. The environment is seen as essential infrastructure and is encompassing interactions in our natural system. And this has several aspects. <clears throat> first, we generate wastes. And wastes have to go somewhere. We can dispose of them in the air and the water, underground, in the oceans, or even in outer space, or we can recycle them. But we need to take an integrated look at how to dispose of our waste in light of the media for doing so. We also need to take and consider how what we do in one area affects what happens in another area. For example, with biologically diverse forests, when we cut them down for palm oil or for ethanol, we eliminate sinks for carbon dioxide and the value of the biological diversity of the forests for other uses. The second aspect of what I call the environmental perspective is that our understanding of the environment will constantly change. Scientific understanding is essential, but there will always be uncertainty regarding the changes in our environment. Models are important but they can be revised and updated. Thus, we need a legal system and laws and regulations and legal instruments that are able to accommodate 
scientific uncertainty and changes in our scientific understanding of the environmental system in our interactions with it. Now the third aspect of the environmental systems perspective concerns the services that our environment performs for us. We can refer to this as ecosystem services. These include the following. Providing materials such as food, fiber, fuel, fresh water, medicines. Regulating the quality of the environment such as air quality, temperature, pests, pollination, and preventing soil erosion. Satisfying important cultural tenets such as knowledge, religion, and spirits. And providing support services such as warming soils, photosynthesis, water recycling, nutrient recycling, and other ecosystem services. So the first perspective then is the environmental systems perspective. The second perspective is the environmental issues of equity today. The equity issues appear both between countries and within countries. They raise issues of environmental justice for international environmental law to address. Low-income countries often suffer the greater pollution harm, and within countries, the low-income areas often suffer greater environmental harms. Sustainable development, as we know, is most in the interest of economically poor communities. The Intergovernmental Panel, re panel uh, Report that was just released on climate change emphasizes the enormous disparate impact that climate change will have on Africa, parts of Asia, Latin America, and the much greater challenge for them to have the resources to adapt. But now there's also another aspect to the equity issue, and that's future generations. International environmental issues today inherently raise concerns about future generations. They're not represented in the decisions that we take today. To be sure, in some countries, national constitutions or legislation incorporate the interests of future generations, either explicitly or in the context of sustainable development. And increasingly, judicial cases within countries have recognized their interests. And this remains a challenge for international environmental law. The third perspective for the context of international environmental law is what I have termed the kaleidoscopic world. States continue to be essential, but the world has become much more complicated. Information technology has transformed the ways in which we communicate. It's empowered actors other than states, the private sector, non-governmental organizations, financial institutions, transnational networks, communities, ad hoc coalitions, and individuals. The system is thus less hierarchical than before and more chaotic. We can view the world as a kaleidoscope in which change occurs rapidly and there are many different handles affecting it. The patterns of coalitions and actors change. Social media and mobile phone technology have led to bottom-up empowerment as well as facilitated top-down surveillance. Tumblr, for example, hosted 543.4 million blogs as of February 2022. 
Over 409 million people view more than 20 billion pages of WordPress each month. And WordPress blogs are written in over 120 languages. Mobile phones have become ubiquitous with over 531 billion unique mobile subscribers as of February 2022. In the kaleidoscopic world, shared values and resulting norms become essential for developing and implementing international environmental law, whether globally, regionally, or locally. In this kaleidoscopic world, there's a significant expansion and diversification in the types of legal instruments that are relevant to international environmental law. Treaties and binding agreements, in my view, remain essential. But we are also witnessing a rapid expansion of non-binding legal instruments, or soft law, and the development of individualized voluntary commitments by states, other governmental bodies, by the private sector, by communities, and even individuals. And this development in the legal instruments will be explored in the next lecture. Having finished the perspectives for the context of international environmental law, I now want to turn to the evolution of international environmental law. In one sense, environmental law is more than a century old and even more ancient than that. But if we want to refer to modern international environmental law, I often date it to 1972 with the United Nations Conference on the Human Environment in Stockholm, Sweden. In June of this year, we will celebrate the 50th anniversary of the Stockholm meeting. Before 1972, there were a limited number of multilateral and bilateral environmental agreements. Most of them concerned the protection of specific species of animals. For example, we have the London Convention for the Protection of Wild Animals, Birds, and Fish in Africa in 1900, the Treaty for the Preservation and Protection of Fur Seals in 1911, the Convention for the Protection of Birds Useful to Agriculture in 1902, and the Convention for the Regulation of Whaling in 1931. These agreements concerned the sustained and commercial aspects of animal conservation. In 1940, states negotiated the Washington Convention on Nature Protection and Wildlife Preservation in the Western Hemisphere, which expanded the scope of protection beyond specific species. And in 1968, we have the African Convention on the Conservation of Nature and Natural Resources. If we turn then to pollution issues, we find that before 1970, international attention to pollution issues was very limited. One notable exception is the 1909 Canada-United States Boundary Waters Treaty, which provides in Article 4 that the waters defined herein as boundary waters and waters flowing across the boundary shall not be polluted on either side to the injury of health or property on the other. That's a very early statement uh, banning pollution. 
Before 1970, there were actually few national environmental laws uh, in place. The Stockholm Conference on the Human Environment in 1972 was path-breaking. States recognized the potential conflict between environmental protection and economic development and the need to integrate people with the environment. The conference title referred to the human environment. The Stockholm Conference produced one of the basic documents in international environmental law, namely the Stockholm Declaration on the Human Environment, which in itself is non-binding. For the first time, states explicitly agreed in Principle 21 of the Declaration that, quote, states have in accordance with the Charter of the United Nations and the principles of international law, the sovereign right to exploit their own resources pursuant to their own environmental policies, and the responsibility to ensure that activities within their jurisdiction or control do not cause damage to the environment of other states or of areas beyond the limits of national jurisdiction. This principle of avoiding harm is central to international environmental law, and it builds upon the jurisprudence in public international law. The Stockholm Conference also laid the basis for a new international organization to address environmental issues. The United Nations Environment Program, which was founded in Nairobi, Kenya in 1972, this period then, between 1971 and 1974, after the Stockholm Conference, was a remarkable period because of the successful negotiation of important multilateral environmental agreements. And let me cite some of them. In natural resources, the 1971 Ramsar Convention on Wetlands by which countries designate particular wetlands for protection under the convention. The 1972 Convention for the Protection of the World Cultural and Natural Heritage, by which countries can designate sites for the World Heritage List. The 1972 Convention on International Trade in Endangered Species of Wild Fauna and Flora, known as the CITES Convention. The 1973 Oslo Agreement on the Conservation of Polar Bears. And then if we turn to pollution and pollution control, we find the 1972 Convention on the Prevention of Marine Pollution by Dumping of Wastes and Other Matters. The 1973 Convention for the Prevention of Pollution from Ships. The 1974 Paris Convention for the Prevention of Marine Pollution from land-based sources. After the United Nations Environment Program was established, we also find that states negotiated regional seas conventions, beginning with the 1976 Barcelona Convention for the Protection of the Mediterranean Sea Against Pollution, and that now there are about a dozen regional seas conventions. Let us turn to a bit broader period of time, namely in the two decades from 1972 to 1992 when the Rio Conference on Environment and Development was held. 
There are many more multilateral environmental agreements that are negotiated in these 20 years. Indeed, by 1993, the year after this period, there was concern about treaty congestion. The focus of the multilateral environmental agreements also expanded during this period. In 1972, the focus was more on transboundary pollution, whether that be air or water pollution or on marine pollution. But the focus subsequently expanded to include regional air pollution, shipments of hazardous wastes, global issues of chemicals that deplete the stratospheric ozone layer, climate change, and biodiversity. In the area of natural resources, then we went from specific resources and animal species to a comprehensive concern about biodiversity within countries, which led states to conclude in 1992 the Convention on Biological Diversity and a document called Ex Explicitly Non-Binding Legal Principles on Forests. What else can we say about this period between 1972 and 1992? Well, first we find that non-governmental organizations and civil society more generally became much more active in environmental uh, protection internationally and within countries. And the business communities become involved. While only a handful of countries had national legislation protecting the environment in 1972, many, many had such legislation by 1992. In 1992, at the Rio Conference on Environment and Development, which is the 20th anniversary of the Stockholm Conference on the Human Environment, countries officially reconciled environmental protection and economic development in the commitment to the concept of sustainable development. The conference in Rio led to some important documents. One of them was the development of a fundamental declaration on environment and development called the Rio Declaration on Environment and Development. We also saw the conclusion of two international agreements, the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change, and as I mentioned, the Convention on Biological Diversity, the non explicitly non-binding uh, legal principles applicable to forests, and the document Agenda 21, which is a very comprehensive plan of action at the global, regional, and local levels for states and others to address environmental problems. The Rio Declaration is itself a very important document uh, for international environmental law. It provides the formulation for many of the principles of international environmental law, which are either have, be, have either become binding or are in the process of becoming so. We also have the private sector involvement. The Business Roundtable was created then and became an important body in bringing in the private sector to begin to be concerned about environmental uh, protection. And so now I turn to a more recent period, uh, that between 1992 and 2012, again, a 20-year period. And there are four important developments that happen now in the evolution of international environmental law. 
And the first was a change in the focus of international environmental agreements. Recall that we were concerned about possible treaty congestion in the previous period. States now moved from focusing on negotiating new international agreements to focusing on the implementation and compliance with existing agreements. At the international level, there was new concern about this issue, as well as concern about complying and enforcement of national environmental laws. The United Nations Environment Program uh, took a leadership role because it developed two documents that were fo focused on implementation and compliance. One on implementation and compliance with multilateral environmental agreements, and the second on national implementation and enforcement of national uh, environmental legislation. There was also a new focus on the use of market mechanisms to foster compliance at the national and international levels, for example, by the use of emissions trading uh, for pollutants uh, of, to control air pollution, or more recently, for climate change. Countries were also concerned about keeping international environmental law up to date by adding protocols, amendments, annexes to existing agreements. Finally, there was a market growth in non-binding legal instruments or soft law during this period. The second major development in these 20 years between 1992 and 2012 was the private sector's increasing involvement. This included development of private-public partnerships, which were a feature of the conference in Johannesburg in 2012. The International Standards Organizations, ISO, development of its 14,000 series on environmental management and certification of those countries that followed the requirements. Voluntary codes of conduct by businesses new concern with green investments, and stockholder efforts to begin to hold companies accountable. And then there's a third major development, and that's with the multilateral development banks, including the Global Environmental Facility, which began to play an increasingly important role in supporting sustainable development through their own policies and procedures. These included environmental assessments, environmental and social safeguards, and other measures. And the fourth significant development was a linkage that became very explicit and much more frequent. And that was linking international environmental law with other important areas of international law. These included human rights and environment, with references in United Nations human rights documents, increased concern about environment and trade, as witnessed in the North American Free Trade Agreement, the World Trade Organization, and the OECD, which is the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development, and new concern with investment in environmental protection again as witnessed in free trade agreements and the OECD. And finally, what I regard as the fifth very significant development in this period 
was a growing concern about climate change. As states realized that changes were becoming more likely, and that at the more extreme ends of the possible scenarios, the changes would have major impact on all aspects of the economy, would involve all countries, and could harm the human environment and the integrity of our ecosystem for years uh, to come. And finally, we come to the last decade. What's happened in the last decade on international environmental law? I think we can point to an increased concern about equity. Who has access to the resources and the ability to consume and how much to consume? Who bears the burden for disposal of wastes, the destruction of natural resources? What about future generations? More countries, communities, and individuals are concerned with protecting nature, with protecting the human environment. And hence, we see the growth of constitutional provisions and judicial, uh, and judicial cases. Soft law instruments continue to increase dramatically. Many more actors, especially non-governmental ones, become engaged. The focus turns even more to achieving sustainable development, which culminated in the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals. The link between national security and environmental change becomes pronounced. Ministries for Defense within countries increasingly see climate change as raising national security issues, including for the availability of fresh water. I would argue that we can view the Earth as a planetary trust in which we are both trustees for the future as well as beneficiaries today and offers and that this offers a vision. But developments in international environmental law parallel developments in this period in international law generally. If we go back to 1972, the prevailing international model was that states were key actors. They make binding international agreements and they're responsible for implementing them. We assumed that implementation and compliance would take place. The model was a hierarchical one. It was relatively unchanging, not a dynamic one, as viewed. However, I think within the last few decades, we have changed, we have seen this system change. We have been witnessing both globalization and fragmentation at the same time. We have been witnessing the divide between public and private international law fading, and the divide between international and domestic law eroding, which has implications for international environmental law. In the final portion of this introductory lecture, I want to turn to the issue of the commons and public goods. As noted at the outset, we are now facing the most significant threats to our planet in history. We can view our planet as a global commons, just as we can view some regions and some local areas as constituting a commons. We are also increasingly facing the need to produce and manage public goods, globally, regionally, nationally, locally. Now often the terms 
commons and public goods are used interchangeably. But they're different, and I just want to highlight that. A commons is generally defined as having two characteristics. Others can't be excluded from using the commons, and one's use of it potentially creates rivalry with another's use. Jurists have referred to the high seas, to fisheries on the high seas, to the atmosphere, to the climate system, to outer space, the ozone layer, as a commons. Countries have sovereignty over their airspace, including the airspace over their territorial sea. But one can argue that the atmosphere is nonetheless a commons for some uses, such as for disposing of pollutants, emitting greenhouse gas emissions, and other uses in which no one can be excluded from access. Commons are rivalrous in the sense that one's use of the commons could affect another's use, even if the commons itself does not physically disappear. Antarctica has sometimes been labeled as a commons, since its health is central to the climate system, and at least for now, under the 1959 treaty, no state can claim ownership or sovereignty over it. Now, public goods, such as control of pandemics, have two characteristics. Others can't be excluded from enjoying them, and they're non-rivalrous in the sense that consumption of the public good by one party doesn't reduce the availability to others. Stable climate, unpolluted atmosphere, control of pandemics could be public goods. Sustainable development, conservation of biological diversity, control of plastics pollution, international financial stability, or others. Public goods are usually not pure public goods, but often have a private development element. It's important to note that the status of goods as public or private may change over time, and it may be a matter of choice. What's important about the production of public goods is that it generally requires cooperation. This may be captured by the international legal doctrine of common and shared responsibilities, which the report from the United Nations General Assembly sponsored drug conference in April 2016 articulated. Coordination of actions, for example, to combat illegal drugs. States may agree to take certain measures domestically and to coordinate with other affected states in doing so, or to combat marine plastic pollution. States may agree to take measures to control plastics domestically from ever reaching the marine environment and to coordinate with other states to monitor and prevent the pollution. Now, conceptually, there are four options to address commons and global public good issues. First, rely on states to exercise national sovereignty within their jurisdiction to address the problem. Secondly, to reach international agreements or conclude other legal instruments. Third, to rely on economic incentives or market instruments. And four, to use voluntary cooperative measures and actions. I only want to focus on two of these, 
namely international agreements or other legal instruments, and voluntary cooperative measures and actions. Now, in the context of commons, um, or even public goods, two critical issues have to be addressed. The first is the problem of the weakest link, or the pollution haven. In our efforts to protect the stratospheric ozone layer, if a few countries with large internal markets had stayed out of the agreement, it could have destroyed the effectiveness of the agreement. Or if some countries reduce greenhouse gas emissions, but others continue with huge emissions, it could destroy the effectiveness in the agreement to reduce greenhouse gas emissions and to guard against costly climate change. And there are ways to do this in international environmental agreements. The second problem is the free rider problem. Namely that if some pay the costs, the others may get the benefits without paying the costs. They get a free ride. For example, if there is a freshwater crisis and 90% of the uses of the water, of the users of the water cut way back on water use, then the others may be able to continue using the water and pay none of the costs. Now both the weak link or pollution haven problem and the free rider problem must be addressed in international environmental agreements that deal with commons uh, issues. The Montreal Protocol controlling chemicals that deplete that high-level ozone layer uh, is an example of an agreement that has addressed these issues. And there's a third issue, and that is an equity issue. There are differences in contribution by states to international environmental problems and differences in countries' ability to be able to address the problems. And these, these equity issues have to be addressed for international agreements uh, to succeed. The other major strategy for addressing commons issues or public goods issues is cooperation and voluntary measures. States and others may not be required to cooperate to manage the commons, but they do so to maintain the common good because it's in their long-term interest to do so, morally responsible, enhances reputation. For this to happen, though, we need norms that can facilitate this, in addition to the usual rights of exercising national sovereignty. So we can ask ourselves, what leads to cooperative behavior that can be reflected in international environmental law? And I think the first element is that we are able to achieve a good that we could not achieve on our own. There are many examples in which states have cooperated to achieve ends that individual efforts could not obtain. Indeed, they date, they date uh, back to the late 1800s when states gave weather data to an international organization in order to be able to make weather forecasts, which at that point no state could have done on its own. This po the positive incentive for cooperation is also that you could is, is that you could gain something that you could not gain on your own. And this is important 
for the production of public goods. Now the other incentive, or the opposite of what I've just said, is that we cooperate to avoid a situation from getting worse. Research has shown that the force of the future can induce cooperative behavior to avoid an undesirable, even bad outcome. In the context of a global commons, it means that if states and others are locked together in the same commons over an extended period of time, it is in their own interests to cooperate to ensure the sustainability of the commons. Protection of the stratospheric ozone layer illustrates this principle. For states, and all of us are inherently linked to the condition of the ozone layer over the lifetime of our existence. And climate change offers perhaps the most poignant example. We have developed several doctrines in international environmental law to accommodate our need to protect commons and to produce and maintain public goods. These include a doctrine of community interest and a doctrine of common concern of humankind. The doctrine of common concern of humankind appears for the first time in the preambles to the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change and the UN Convention on Biological Diversity. It has now been applied in other areas, such as freshwater, which we explore later. So to address international environmental problems, we will continue to need international agreements, but we will also need other kinds of legal instruments and voluntary cooperative actions by not only states, but the new increasingly diverse actors in the international system, in regional systems, and in local uh, communities. I look forward uh, to discussing the sources of international environmental law with you in the next lecture. Thank you very much.